from the National Association of Evangelicals. Welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, what white Christians need to know about black churches. Host Leif Anderson, NAE president, talks with Claude Alexander, senior pastor of the Park Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Let's join in. I'm Leif Anderson, president of the NAE, here with Claude Alexander. Bishop Alexander has been the senior pastor of the Park Church in Charlotte, North Carolina for over 25 years. Under his leadership, the Park Church, which is a 100-year-old church, has grown from one local congregation of 600 members to a global ministry of thousands with three locations and weekly international reach. He is the immediate past president of the Hampton University Ministers Conference, the current board member at Christianity Today, as well as Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and also on the board of Wycliffe Bible Translators. And he holds degrees from Morehouse College, Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, and Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Thank you for joining us today, Bishop Alexander. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Many white Christians have actually never been inside an African-American church and don't know much about its history or culture. And yet, we have so much in common with one another and we share the same foundational beliefs. When the NAE and LifeWay Research looked at evangelical beliefs among Americans, we found that 44% of black Americans are evangelical. And at the same time, much less, 28% of white Americans are classified as holding evangelical beliefs. So today, we're going to try to get at some history and fill in some answers to questions that white evangelicals may not even know to ask. So first of all, I, I think we should maybe get on the same page and make sure we understand what we're talking about. So uh, what are we talking about when we talk about the black church? So by the black church, we're really talking about the independent, historic and totally black-controlled denominations, um, which were founded probably in the late 1700s after the Free African Society of 1787. And so that would include uh, denominations like the AME Church, AME Zion, that's African Methodist Episcopal, or African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, the Christian Methodist Episcopal, the Baptist churches, which have several, um, the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World, the Church of Christ, and the Church of God in Christ. And uh, there, there are two, two things in terms of the history. There's the invisible institution, uh, which was those secret meetings in the barns and the fields and under trees and down by the rivers during slavery, and then the visible institution which um, started in the South when, um, uh, at, with the aid of, of whites because blacks could not own land and uh, many of them started with white pastors. And you had churches like Silver Bluff Baptist Church in South Carolina or the First African Church in Savannah or Springfield Baptist Church in Augusta, Georgia. In the Mid-Atlantic, that's where Methodism uh, was key for the development of the black church. And that began when Richard Allen and Absalom Jones and some 
other worshipers were found praying in a place that was reserved only for whites. And when they were pulled up from praying in that place, they then developed their own worship group. And that was known as the Free African Society. And that's, that was the beginning of what would later be called the African Methodist Episcopal Church. When they started, they really sought to operate within association with the larger church. Um, they sought to demonstrate their ability to be efficient and effective as independent congregations with the hope that the views of them would change and that barriers would be dissolved. And when that did not happen, they then formed independent associations and conventions. And so from a historical perspective, the formation of what we know as the black church served as a critique of the white church and an affirmation of the intrinsic value of blacks as worshipers of God through Jesus Christ. The church became then the means for affirmation and socialization, places of belonging and connection. When I think, uh, as a white person and a pastor, think of black churches, I, I tend to think uh, historically more about the South. And yet, I was born and raised in metropolitan New York City, where there are <laughs> amazing African-American churches that go back before the Civil War and have had a yeah. long and significant history. And I, I'm kind of embarrassed to say I, I've, I've heard more and know more about the Southern churches than I do about the African-American churches in this huge metropolitan area where I grew up. I've actually learned more you know, as an adult than I did growing up. But So is there a difference between the black churches of the North and the South? Because the historical trajectory on this has not been the same. Um, in, in some ways, there are tonal differences. Uh, like, for instance, uh, some songs would be sung slower in the South and faster in the North. But the basic theological understandings, um, the basic uh, ways in which both had to do ministry were very much the same um, because whether you were in the South or in the North, you experienced racism. It's interesting to note that one of the earlier laws dealing with slavery was enacted in New York, <laughs> right? And so this, this notion, this, this concept of, of the South being the bastion, no in the founding of America and even before its original founding, it was all 13 colonies. There was cooperation and collaboration in the, the slave enterprise. And therefore, when those people gathered to worship, 
wherever they were, north or south, many of them were facing the same things, and the needs that the church had to meet were the same. So there's a solidarity across the black churches, north and south, that's parallel. It's, uh, one way of saying this is someone uh, then and now moving from one part of the country to the other would fit in relatively well and comfortably, even though being from the north or the south. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Well, what about... Go ahead. And when when conventions had to deal with where they stood in terms of slavery, right? They would they would split and one of the ways of denoting the split would be the inclusion of the word southern. So uh that's how you got Southern Baptist and American Baptist, right? So even if a church was located in the South, okay, a black Baptist church that chose to affiliate with a white Baptist denomination during that time and immediately thereafter and really up until possibly the 1970s, most black Baptist churches associated with the American Baptist churches that were Northern, even though they were located in the South. So that, that also helps fill that out. All right, so for uh, white evangelical Christians who would like to learn about historic uh, African-American religious leaders, uh, you know, if they're going to look up Wikipedia articles, um, who are some of the people, who, who are the names of historic black preachers and teachers and theologians that we should know about? So one would be George Lau, um, who was also the first missionary from America, journeying to Jamaica some 30 years before Judson went to Burma. Uh, Richard Allen, Absalom Jones, James Barrick, Denmark Vesey, William Seymour from the Azusas, um, C.P. Jones. Nat Turner, there's a movie about Nat Turner that came out recently. It's entitled The Birth of a Nation. Very insightful uh, film. Benjamin Mays, who is credited with developing the Morehouse mystique and having mentored Martin Luther King Jr., Howard Thurman, J.D. Otis Roberts, Albert Rabateau, who's written a book entitled Slave Religion, James Cone, who wrote Black Theology, preachers J.H. Jackson, uh, Gardner Taylor, Samuel DeWitt Proctor, Sandy Ray, William Augustus Jones, Tom Skinner would be familiar. Uh, to people as well as um, John Perkins. Books that I would recommend would be Carter G. Woodson's History of the Negro Church, uh, Bishop Joseph A. Johnson Jr.'s book, The Soul of the Black Preacher, Albert Rabateau's book, Slave Religion, C. Eric Lincoln and Lawrence Mamaya's book, The Black Church and the African American Experience. If you want to get a compendium, the Norton, Norton Anthology, has one for black preaching. It's by Martha Simmons and Frank Thomas, and it's entitled Preaching with Sacred Fire. Those would be some. Wow, that's an amazing list. And uh, to go back on that I grew up in metropolitan New York, thank you for including Gardner Taylor and Tom Skinner, <laughs> because they are from yeah. uh, you know, my zip code area. So those are, yeah. those are famous names that I'm well familiar with. 
All right, so um, you and I know each other, and I count you as a friend, and there's you have lots of qualifications, but there is one, I don't know, I kind of put this at the top of the list. I mean, being the pastor of Park Church is, is the big deal, but the really big deal, it seems to me, nationally, is the Hampton University Ministers Conference, and that you are the immediate past president, and you, if I recall correctly, you serve longer than most people serve in that position, and that is in my estimation, like the leading pastors' conference of America. So tell us about it. So the Hampton University Ministers' Conference uh, is the oldest and largest interdenominational gathering of African-American clergy in the country. It was formed in 1914 on the grounds of a then Hampton Institute out of a desire to provide some theological education for rural African-American clergy in Virginia. Um, these were pastors who worked farms or whatever, did not have the opportunity to go to school, and so it was set aside a time for concentrated learning. And it was, it's been a unique marriage between church and academy because the conference is owned by what was then Hampton, Hampton Institute, now Hampton University. But in large part, it is programmed by clergy in partnership with the university. And so it has grown over the years and continues to meet uh, the week after the first Sunday in June on the campus of Hampton University. And how did you, you were like the vice president and then became the president. Your engagement there has been long term, right? Right, right. Um, I I started just being taken by by my by my uncles in nineteen nineteen eighty four, and um, one of the presidents uh, who has been a father in ministry to me, uh, Bishop Walter Thomas, during his presidency, he uh, had me be the morning preacher uh, during one of those years, and that was my formal introduction um, to Hampton, and then subsequent to that, I was elected as part of the, uh, the cadre of officers. You start as uh, either the necrologist, which is basically the person who keeps the record of those who's died, those who've died in previous years and makes a report, and you go your way up. So that's how it happened. Amazing and wonderful. Well, let's just go on to another question, and that is, sure. this is such a big question that uh, maybe it's asking too much in in one question. But <laughs> what do you what do you see as the main differences between predominantly black churches and predominantly white churches? Wow. Um, so I, I would I would come at this uh, in several several ways. One, I think. Is, is how exegesis is done. Um, in, in general, exegesis for black preachers historically has been existential. That is the locating of the life of the text with the life of the people. And being able to to indeed read the text 
as it is and see how that is with the life of the people. And it causes it causes one to to see the same Jesus in different ways. So to 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 look at Jesus hanging on the cross is not simply to see the atonement, which is absolutely central, essential for our faith. But it is also to see Jesus as sufferer, as not just sin bearer, but pain bearer. And then to see the victory over that, not just being the victory over sin, not just being the victory over death and the grave, but also seeing that as the hope for victory over suffering in society. Um, that that that's that's key. That's that's crucial. Another thing that would be the the eminence of God. I think in um, on whole within white churches there is the emphasis on the transcendence of God. That this God is totally other, absolutely holy and righteous. And yes. Black churches affirm that. But within existence, within life, there was the need to also affirm the eminence of God. That is, this God that's totally other is also this God that is very, very present, active within the world and within the world where you live. And so within black hymnody, and black preaching, you'll hear, you know, God sits high, but he also looks low. It's to bring out, it's to bring out the eminence of God. In terms of, in terms of worship, um, there is this notion of probably akin to the Psalter, um, where uh, the testimony of challenge and lament and overcoming of adversity and where music became the means of externalizing the stuff that you faced, um, a way of trying to reconcile this goodness and power of God within the context of this oppression, this discrimination, this suffering that one faces. And so that's built within the bedrock. And even though we've experienced tremendous progress, to be sure that that memory still remains. And it shows itself often in not just the content of the songs that are sung, but the tonality with which they're sung. You you give me the impression of uh, like a pebble in a pond and it goes out in rings. And what I hear you describing is a, a central theological 
cultural, philosophical set of presuppositions, primarily expressed in preaching, but then moving out into music and into the overall expression of the life of the church. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah. Yes, yes. All right, well, let, let's move on to pastors. Okay, so okay. I've been a pastor sure. most of my life, and I'm always interested in how different churches have different cultures in treating their pastors, and I've had many conversations with African-American pastors, some of whom have very clearly told me that they are grateful to God that they're not pastoring white churches because <laughs> it's so much a better deal to be a pastor of a black church. And they have told me stories which has made me actually agree significantly with some of the things they've had to say. But I'll, I'll let, I'm supposed to be asking the questions here. Um, so how do black churches relate to their pastors, and especially if you want to, how that differs from how white churches do it? So I, I think you have to anchor it in history, right? And and so, you know, in the in the beginnings, probably, you know, the person who could read was the preacher. And you go from that to the notion of of education, and so often, in the development of a church, the most educated or one of the most educated people in the whole congregation was the pastor, and therefore the pastor was looked up to um, because of, of his education, because of his intellect. He also had to play the role of um, communitarian, the leader of the tribe, the advocate for the community, uh, the father figure, the, the connector. Those were, those were roles, right, that that he had to play that caused him to be held in the esteem the way that he was. Um, and that, that, that has carried over, you know, but nowadays with, um, with the progress, the, the pastor may or may not be the most educated person in the congregation. Um, but still, the pastor is looked to uh, to be a source of of revelation that you don't get through education. In many cases, the pastor still is a father figure to many, and still is looked to to voice both the aspirations and the, the challenges of the people um, that, that he oversees. And so therefore, uh, there, is, there is that, that esteem. Now, um, within the millennials, there is, there is skepticism <laughs> of, of, of pastors, and that crosses race, right? Um, because of where we are in society. But still, I, I like being a pastor. Uh, I'm glad God called me to this work. Let, let's talk about how people choose churches. And I'm going to make a generalization here, which I probably can't mm -hmm. very well defend. But it seems to me that white churches want uh, black parishioners, want people 
who are black to come to their churches, which is an interesting anomaly in, in terms of uh, of history when it used to be quite the opposite. And yet there are many who are black who who would be welcomed into a white church but have preferred to be in an African-American church. So I, I'm not even quite sure how to, how to phrase that, but um, what do you think may prevent African-Americans from going to Anglo churches where they may be wanted? Does that make sense? Sure, sure. And, and, and uh, you know, I mean, I mean, we want we want we want whites to come to our churches too. So I I think to answer that it is probably the same thing, and that is the desire to be with one's own. Um, it's it's not, you know. But before you're right, historically there were barriers that prevented, and now those barriers. Um, have been removed or or lessened, but still uh, people choose to be where they're the majority, where they're with their own, where they feel comfortable. I think also historically, the black church for black people has served more like a synagogue, what the synagogue is to Jews. And so the synagogue is not just a place of religious instruction, but it's also the repository of the culture and the history. And so that's still strong for, for many black people. And with there being the minority in every other place, that's a place where they still get to be the majority. Invariably, though, when you look at the demographics, you will still find more blacks in white churches than you'll find whites in black churches. And it has nothing to do with worship style because you can compare them apples to apples, silk stocking to silk stocking, charismatic to charismatic, middle of the road to middle of the road. You'll still find more blacks in white churches than you will whites and blacks for this simple fact. When you are a minority in every other aspect of your life, going to a majority church is but another step. When you are the majority in every other part of your life, coming to a minority church is not a step, it's a leap. And yet you, you have to be really intentional when you make that leap. That raises the whole question of uh, racism and racial reconciliation. Um, the, there's been a lot written that um, among white evangelicals, um, everybody says, I'm not a racist, and tends to use individual examples of relationships and friendships that are very personal and very specific. But tend not to see this as systemic. And there's a different perspective on, um, on what is racism and what is racial reconciliation. So help, help us white folk understand this. So as, as you and I know as pastors, when we're doing, um, when we're counseling a couple, right, that's thinking about divorce. One of the things that 
that we have to do is is to get to the severity, how deep the break is, and what are all of the issues that were a part of it, right? And so for any type of reconciliation to occur, um, it's important to know the break, the severity, the depth, the reach, the influences, etc. And when it comes to racial reconciliation in America, I mean, it is systemic and structural, and it runs deep. When you consider that from before the founding of the nation up until 1968, right, there was the intentional, legalized, structural, systemic denial of personhood, place, participation, and privilege to blacks simply on the basis of race. It had nothing to do with person, one-to-one relationships. This was, this was systemic and structural. And much of what is currently in place now in terms of gap goes back to specific structural decisions. I'll just give you two. When Social Security was introduced, blacks and Hispanics were primarily denied because Social Security, within that clause, there was a clause that said, except for persons working as domestics or uh, migrant workers. Well, who were the migrant workers? They were Latinas. And who were the domestics? They were blacks. And so within the writing of the Social Security Act, those benefits did not fall to them until much later. The second example, the GI Bill, which we all know is the one bill, the one piece of legislation pointed to as being the single most important factor for the development of the middle class. That was for white soldiers only. Black soldiers, when they came back from World War II, they didn't get any of those benefits. Those things are structural. So when we, when we talk about multi-generational transfer of wealth, right, there were structural and systemic things that came to play in that. And there are vestiges that are outstanding. Um, so so it, it's, but you don't get that if you don't know the history, right? You don't, you, you can't speak to something systemic when you don't know where it started. And so a lot of it is out of ignorance and also racial indifference. And indifference is as deadly as active racism um, because indifference is what sets the environment active racism to show itself. And indifference and indifference with ignorance is a terrible combination. Yes. yes. Uh, let, let, let's go back to the, the black and, and the white church for a minute. I've sure. over the years taught many doctoral students in, in, in ministry and I was, I'm scheduled uh, for a course coming up where the majority of the students 
in that particular doctoral program are African American. And I've taught there mm -hmm. before, and my, my experience is, you know the old adage, the teacher learned more than the teacher taught. Um, when I have a significant number of African American students in the class, I learn so much. I, I really do. So tell me, um, or tell us, what can white churches learn from black churches? What, what can you give to us to learn from the black church? Well, I think one, uh, faithfulness to the gospel in the midst of suffering. Um, second, openness to the other in the midst of oppression. And the best example I could give you is Mother Emanuel. Those nine people welcoming Dylan Roof into the Bible study. That that degree of openness, not not having in their minds what could be the possible outcome that they could lose their lives just by being welcoming and open, but this openness to the other. I think I think the third, and which is going to be even more important in the days to come. And that is the capacity to speak with power from the margin or from the bottom. Historically, um, the church, now I'm using Big C, uh, in America has been at the center and has been able to speak from the top and, to, and has been able to assume a degree of authority and influence uh, with the culture. Well, that is no longer the case. And increasingly, the church is being pushed to the margin, which is an experience that for the white church is new. But it's not for the black church. The black church has always spoken from the margin. And perhaps that's the most important lesson that the black church can teach now is the ability to speak with power from the margin and trust God to work with that. That is powerful and challenging. Let, let me ask you one last question and I sure we could this conversation could and should go on for a long time. When when I look at the black church, I see 44% of uh, black Americans are evangelicals, 28% of whites are evangelicals. Many white churches are plateaued when nearby are African-American churches that are growing. Um, it seems to me that there's a lot of really good news. But the question is, what excites you? What brings you hope when you look at the black church in America? I think the survival, the adaptability, the creative innovation of the church excites me. Um, the, the, the history is one of constant adaptability. And being able to speak the truth of the gospel uh, to people in a way that it reaches them right where they are their lived existence and causes them to see not just Christ being eternally relevant, but existentially relevant. 
And to the degree that the church is able to continue to do that, it will be relevant within the culture and can shine a light for others to follow. Listeners may also be interested in the NAE magazine, uh, in addition focused on evangelicals and race. The, the cover article there was, Are Multi-Ethnic Churches the Only Way? And for those who are interested, it can be found at nae.net slash magazine. And on this topic of race, for any of our podcast listeners who haven't already heard it, there's an amazing podcast on the theology of race with Walter Kim. And that's also at nae.net slash Kim Podcast. Our guest on today's conversation has been Bishop Claude Alexander, the senior pastor of the Park Church. And I'm Leith Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Bishop Alexander. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.